All right, so we're back to Cracks in Postmodernity with Carlo Lancelotti, who is a professor of mathematics and the department chair at the College of Staten Island, and he's also the translator of three volumes of essays by the late Italian philosopher Augusto Del Noce. So let's start with a brief background. Who is Del Noce, and then why did he decide to translate his works? Well, thank you for having me, Stephen. Um, Del Noce was a distinguished Italian philosopher. Uh, who died in 1989, and he became well-known in Italy after the 60s as a scholar of Marxism, of particular of, of Gramsci, and also as a critic of the kind of modern Western secularization. He, he was a Catholic thinker, but he distinguished himself from other Catholic thinkers for his deep interest and knowledge in secular culture. Not only, as I said, he was a scholar of Marx, but he really tried hard to think and to critic secular culture after World War II in a non-reactionary fashion, meaning that you know, often the Catholic response to secularization has been like a moral critique of the consequences or some kind of uh, dream of a return to the past. Uh, Del Noce was more interested in understanding the philosophical roots of the phenomenon and to realize, uh, to identify what are the, the, the key philosophical issues. About why I translated him, because I thought, I felt that Del Noce filled a niche that was missing in American um, culture in general, or especially in Catholic culture, um, precisely because his analysis is uh, non-moralistic, but tries to capture certain fundamental, fundamental again, philosophical issues. You know, generally speaking, if I want to, if I can speak in, in, in great generality, uh, one perceives that, for example, the critique of, say, of the sexual revolution among American Catholic Christians has been, again, moral in some sense, identifying mm -hmm. it as a, as a kind of a, a moral decline, as opposed to understanding what it terms to mean, say, of anthropology, of the mm -hmm. idea of man behind it. And Del Noche is really about that kind of thing. You know, I mean, part of the problem is that American culture traditionally is very pragmatic and sometimes often scientific. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't like uh, what the Noche would call a more metaphysical analysis. The Noche believed that people are motivated by their deepest sense of self, how they understand themselves in the universe, and ultimately by certain deep religious assumptions that the pragmatist kind of scientific culture really never explores. And so I, I felt that there was something missing. I mean, also the notion was a big scholar of totalitarianism because mm -hmm. he grew up under fascism and then communism. And uh, so he was very familiar with concepts like ideology, the ideological mindset was very familiar to him. And I felt that sometimes American culture was somewhat innocent of this phenomenon for historical reasons, not because people were not smart, but because uh, they never saw it before, and uh, in my lifetime, I've been in this country for 30 years, I've seen a constant expansion of what I call the ideological mindset and potentially totalitarian mindset in which politics becomes more and more absolute in the etymological sense, becomes a source of meaning uh, that replaces religion. And these are Del Nocean themes. Del Nocean was all about understanding atheism as a religious option and uh, in a sense this happened in Europe before America although in different ways and so I thought that this lesson still was relevant to some of the current trends mm -hmm. here. 
Yeah, and you know, out of the many interesting things that he says in these essays, what stands out to me the most is his understanding of what he calls the affluent society and then this final bourgeois revolution of the 60s. Because you know, whether you see this more Marxist or socialist critique on the left of the bourgeoisie, um, as opposed to the needs of the, the poor, the working class, but also, I guess, these more traditional reactionary responses to what's going on. What's missing from both sides is this understanding of the ontology of the person, of you know, the person's metaphysical experiences, motivation. Um, whereas on the left, you see more of this materialistic reduction of you know, people need money, people need food, whatever. And then within more traditional circles, this moralistic critique. But again, I think what he's highlighting is something that's lacking from all the discourses at, at hand. So could you explain a little bit more about what he means by the affluent society and this bourgeois, final bourgeois revolution? Yes, I mean, the, the notion around 1960 and then over the next decade spotted a new culture taking shape. And, and this new culture is variously called the affluent society or you later use the word occidentalism. Mm -hmm. We're referring to you know, the, the Latin word for the West. And still today we talk about the West. And, 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 and at the time, people thought that there was some kind of natural alliance between the West and Christianity, if you wish, in the sense that, you know, the common enemy was communism, you know, atheistic uh, Marxism in the Soviet Union or in China. And people kind of took for granted that uh, the West uh, was a protection against this totalitarian phenomenon that was not intrinsically dangerous to the Christian worldview because it was religiously neutral, right? That was kind of the assumption, if you read authors from that period. While uh, the notion realized very early that it was not so, that the, the West was a different form of atheism, if you wish, that was anti-Marxist. Mm -hmm. But while being anti-Marxist, it did accept some fundamental metaphysical presupposition that it kind of stole from Marxism and used against Marxism itself. Mm -hmm. Like typically, the idea that uh, people are economic creatures and that uh, ideas are determined by material factors. Mm -hmm. um, or you know, the notion of, in a sense, a, a earthly happiness. The idea that, uh, that, that there is no need for transcendence. Or that in fact, politics uh, needs to cut off transcendence in order not to be totalitarian or authoritarian. So, in the notion you all, all of this is not true, but what, what is interesting to me is that there was a new synthesis. And this new synthesis was, on one hand, a rediscovery of ideas from the Enlightenment of the 18th century, again, the sense of universalism, cosmopolitanism, the fact that uh, individual individualism, individual rights, right, all these were rediscoveries that were rediscovered in opposition to, say, fascism and communism. Mm -hmm. But these ideas from the Enlightenment were combined also with certain Marxist ideas, the, the idea of liberation for repression, for example. Mm -hmm. the, 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 to him, the, the whole idea of liberation as still endures in a sexual sense, no more in an economic sense, is a Marxist idea in as much it posits that we don't have anything in common, but in order to be liberated as an individual, I have to liberate everybody else um, by cutting off oppressive uh, bonds, oppressive mm -hmm. structures. Uh, and so, but anyway, to go back to, to your question, he thought that there was this new synthesis of ideas from the Enlightenment and the certain Marxist concepts that were used against communism in a political sense, mm -hmm. but were not, were just as hostile to a Christian worldview. 
and and so he, he founded the Affluent Society was a new actor, third actor, right? And there was Christianity, there was Marxism, now there was this new type of secularism coming from the Affluent Society, from the West, the idea of the West, which in the long run was more dangerous than Marx. That was his, his insight. Right? And he understood that very early. And interesting, he also prophesied that Marxism was going to lose. I mean, at the time, it was not easy. In the 60s, people were still very concerned about the Cold War and communism. But Bernoulli uh, saw that already in the West, this new kind of bourgeois answer to Marxism was winning. Right? The upper mm -hmm. society is like a bourgeois answer to Marxism that sheds the old Kantian, Christian morality that was still respected by the bourgeoisie in the 19th century and creates a more pure bourgeoisie, a bourgeoisie mm -hmm. which in which everything becomes is as an object of trade, including the human body, sex, uh, uh, identity, everything becomes marketable. And, uh, and, and he felt that this new, this new purer bourgeoisie was going to win over Marxism. Not only that, but that the left, the left, by not reviewing their metaphysical assumptions about what it means to be a human being, what is happiness, uh, the nature of authority, the, the, the concept of transcendence, by accepting the Marxist philosophical presupposition of materialism, immanentism, uh, you know, sociologism, you know, the, was really carrying water for the new affluent society mindset, that the left would be powerless in front of this unless it reviewed certain philosophical assumptions. So can you give more examples of, like, what, what is this affluent society? Where do we see this today, specifically, like, in the U.S.? Well, I mean, the affluent society is, uh, let's put it this way, the, the ideal of a life uh, which is self-sufficient mm -hmm. in material and psychophysical well-being. He also calls it the society of well-being. And you can see people who pursue, I mean, we, we, are in the, we are in the age of the world in which you have the best food, you know, food from all over the world, mm -hmm. the best travel. You can travel wherever you want. And, 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 and you have an international class of people who share this passion for well-being. And then you have the the, the care of the body. No, no, no age in history took care of the human body the way we take care of the body, right? And, and all these things by themselves are not wrong, but they add up to a, a, an ideal which is profoundly bourgeois, the idea that it's possible to be happy by using, also by using other people, uh, but without any, let's put it this way, religiosity, meaning any sense of a larger narrative or a larger meaning of life that is necessary for happiness. So, uh, the, the ideology of the of the African society is an ideology of psychophysical material happiness that affirms that in a sense the religious questions are meaningless I would say yeah and I think it's this total evasion of suffering right. and discomfort um, and, and death yeah because you and I especially see at least with people my age like people are using this word toxic more and more frequently like to describe something that takes one out of their comfort zone or that's I don't know, that's just difficult to deal with. So, like, we have to avoid these toxic situations, these toxic relationships, ultimately because there's no promise that within suffering, within discomfort, there's some ultimate value. There's something that transcends the circumstances. And if that's the case, that there's no transcendent meaning guaranteed to me in whatever situation, whether it's uncomfortable or pleasant, then the goal of life becomes this, to avoid that and to seek well-being, to seek comfort. Yeah, on one hand, there is the idea that you have to remove suffering and sacrifice. That's another word you can use, the word yeah. sacrifice, right? But deep down, there is also a, an amputation 
of the deepest uh, human desires, right? Yeah. The, 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 the deepest human desire is not just to avoid suffering, but um, there is always something unfinished, something incomplete about us that cries out for more in terms of, of relationships. It's while, on, on the, uh, from a bourgeois perspective, uh, love is love. Okay, this is yeah. just to me that's the sentence that embodies <laughs> perfectly uh, this worldview because yeah. uh, because love. Is love could be used in a better way, but often means that uh, we that, that, that there is something that can ultimately satisfy our need for love in a say in a relationship, right? I mean, it's typical that our society expects the perfect relationship, the mm -hmm. perfect sexual romantic relationship, will bring us happiness. Yeah. But our experience is that. Uh, the, the, the relationship is always dramatic and yeah. in some sense unsatisfactory. Uh, it, it, it is satisfactory only as a tension. It's only satisfactory as an opening to a mysterious beyond that we don't yet possess. If a relationship becomes closed onto itself, yeah. right? You know what I mean? If, if a relationship tries to make each other happy, uh, it becomes oppressive, it becomes suffocating immediately. And this is the experience that when you cut off transcendence, love is not love, ultimately. You know, you really love another person, as uh, our, our teacher Fire Dusan used to say, when you love their destiny, right? That's the true love. But to love their destiny is a, is a metaphor to say, when you recognize that you cannot make them happy, that there is, that they need always more, that there is always a beyond, right? If you cut off this, love as this satisfactory sexual romantic uh, mutual possession is not love. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, and ultimately what you see when you cut out this notion of religious beatitude or transcendence, you have to deny reality at a certain point, because if we're going to uphold this ideal of love as something sentimental, something sexual, and we all know in the back of our minds that you're going to hit a point in the relationship when, yes, there will be drama, you're not going to necessarily enjoy each other every second of the day. Like We see relationships, the at least the emotional piece of relationships, fall apart all the time. And yet we really act as if this is the ideal of love. Why are we treating this as the ideal if we know it's built to collapse? Because we don't have, like, we're throwing out the tools to make sense of this human drama and make sense of this tension if we decide the, the, the purpose of life is well-being. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and another aspect of this is the, the epidemics of, you know, mental illness. You yeah. know, because uh, to me, there, I, I see it everywhere. Once you cut off this beyond transcendence, that just as a level of questions, or having a narrative about that your life as a meaning that transcends this mm -hmm. cycle of consumption and mutual psychological possession, when you cut off this greater context, mm -hmm. the, the human being simply stops functioning. I mean, it's, it's very, very strange, but <laughs> it is yeah. true. And no, I mean, that's been my observation, that people who grow up in a very affluent, comfortable environment, especially like if you're growing up in suburbia, if you're growing up with financial comfort, a lot of people will develop certain psychological complexes because, you know, like if you're raised to believe that life is about I don't know, fulfilling your whims and avoiding discomfort and, suf and suffering, then you never have, like you're never told that the drama that you, whether the internal drama of longing for some kind of ultimate meaning or the drama in relationships, drama in your work, you're told that this is something that's foreign to your experience, that there isn't a meaning. And when you're not given the tools to make sense of that, both the internal and external drama, then like all you can do is start to, I don't know, I guess you develop these complexes. And that's why I see 
don't know, so many people I grew up with were on some kind of medication right. to numb these questions, to numb this sense that, no, there is tension, there is drama in our lives, but exactly. again, where's the meaning? How do we make <clears throat> sense of this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to go a little bit more into, um, he, he talks about how the revolutionaries of the 60s merged Marxist ideas with Freud, with Reich, with this kind of psychological understanding of liberation because if Marx right. starts out with this purely um, economic vision exactly. um, you know w what do you think led to this point that the economic vision of liberation turned into this psycho psychological sexual vision of liberation well um, I would say that it was heavily promoted both by say the the economic powers of society and by the intellectuals. I mean, they, uh, they certainly, if you look at, you know, movies from the 60s and 70s, people, there's always this narrative, right, that you have been repressed and now you are going to be free to be yourself, follow the force, <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, follow your instinct. Uh, this idea of liberation was promoted very heavily by the culture of powers that be. And now, I don't want to state it as a conspiracy theory, but it's clearly a way to depotentiate the revolutionary threats to the Western economic system and to sublimate this threat into an individualistic bourgeois version that poses no danger whatsoever mm -hmm. to the to the economic system. Right? I'm not a Marxist myself, but it's clear that uh, the notion I think it says that uh, in in this bourgeois answer, it, it became an individualized Marxist, right? The, the, the way to beat it was the bourgeois way to beat Marxism, yeah. right? The way to beat the Marxist revolution was to transfer it from being a class revolution to be an individual revolution. That I am a revolutionary because I free myself from the shackles of traditional morality. Yeah. Uh, repression, you know, the, now today there is a different phobias of this and that, and, 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 and in this, this process, psychologically, as the zing, as the, the frisson, the French say, of revolution, mm -hmm. but it is completely individualistic, and so at the yeah. end of the day, it doesn't pose any threat to say the the big corporations and you can see you can see today that the big corporations love it right <laughs> because because as been pointed out by many people it, it's great for consumption you can sell stuff using this uh, this symbolism of, of liberation from repression so again I, I think it it's not it was not planned centrally by anyone mm -hmm. but in the logic of ideas it was the natural way to beat Marxists to beat communists if you think of the context of the Cold War the way people felt that they could win the Cold War was by proposing a society of free, affluent, liberated sexual agents mm -hmm. against the puritanical, materially poor um, communist countries. And it worked great, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it really was very functional to the triumph of the West. Yeah. No, and I, I want to talk more about like the, the corporate interests and this kind of individualistic sexual ethos. But before that, I think it's important to note that in the 60s, these so-called revolutionaries who wanted to challenge the bourgeoisie falsely associated a traditional religious understanding of the person with the right. bourgeois social norms. And I think, I mean, sure, I think you could say that for someone whose understanding of religion is puritanical, like in a, in a very Protestant sense, but the traditional Catholic view of the person as you know, oriented towards the infinite, this tension between the self and some ultimate uh, higher ideal, um, What's missing there, again, is this ontological understanding of those teachings, that it wasn't about 
controlling yourself for some bourgeois ideal of respectability or whatever, but it's the reason why there are certain ethical norms in Catholicism is for the liberation of the person, for the liberation of the person's desire, really. And because they miscalculated that ontological level, this revolution against the bourgeoisie ultimately becomes even more bourgeois because I think you cited this in one of the articles that you're removing every constraint from turning the person into some kind of material commodity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was talking about the intellectuals and the cultural industry and, you know, and the, and the big corporations promoting this kind of individualistic sublimation of the revolution, so to speak, I was not talking about, say, the, the hippies or the young people of the 60s who, you know, the Paris 1968. Actually, the Noche was favorable to them in some sense. You know, one of his essays called The Notes Towards the Flutter of Young People, he says that they express a genuine desire. I mean, in a sense, he, he regarded the, the rebellion of 1968 in Europe as a rebellion against the West, against the affluent society, against the inhumanity of this kind of neo-bourgeois, mm -hmm. super-consumeristic world. Yeah. But he, he, his opinion was that they were co-opted. Co Is that the word? You know, that they, mm -hmm. that, 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 that they were not able, they were young, they were not able to identify the danger that you described in this kind of uh, false metaphysics, false idea of the human person, they they were told that the problems were coming from uh, you know, the, the church or coming from the liberal traditional schooling system or they were coming from sexual repression or they were coming from from tradition, right? And mm -hmm. in some sense, uh, this was a, a, a just a tragic, not just a tragic misunderstanding yeah. because uh, in, in reality, uh, what they were rebelling against was the Western system after World War II, but paradoxically they were used as cannon fodder to destroy some of the traditional institutions who hampered, who were obstacles to this universal marketization, universal yeah. um, consumerization of, of, of society. Because, I mean, we can see the results because then in the 1990s, when the generation of 1968 came to power, it's really where our present time starts, in which everything is marketable, you know, everything is in ultimately a possibility for the individual to increase well-being without asking questions. And yeah, and I mean, I think this is the cognitive dissonance we see today in a lot of progressive discourse, because there's this understanding that, yeah, like, the control of these corporate powers is corrupt, like, it is against the freedom, the dignity of the person, but if you don't have some kind of metaphysical element to your critique or to your... To your praxis, whatever you're trying to do, there's not much you can really accomplish without that element to your what you know to what you're doing. I mean, more, more than anything, I think that you know one of the things that uh, the affluent society, the West, mm -hmm. stole from Marxism is uh, this idea that in order to achieve liberation, you also have to liberate yourself, in a sense, from the idea of truth of givenness mm -hmm. right because the the, the, the the sense if you if you if you read marx who was a hegelian uh, is that uh, everything given is oppressed that to be free we must in a sense create ourselves we have to be this self-creating agents you know through mm -hmm. our creativity you know there's this whole genre on creativity be yourself be you and so on and so forth but the, the, the tragic conclusion of this line of thinking is that author is what matters is power, yeah. not truth, because the truth is always something in a sense given that you recognize. You know, the, 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 from a classical, not even Christian, but even Greek perspective, even Plato, you know, you, you, uh, 
the truth transcends us. To be true is something that we don't make, it's something that transcends us. And if you have to be this uh, self-creating agent, which is what we still propose to our young people today, if you think of it, you know, uh, then what matters is power, right? Yeah. And power is a good word in our culture. And today, to be empowered, to have power, you know, it, it has a positive connotation. But there is a danger there that the, the, the notion of power is really, in some sense, the dialectical opposite of the idea of truth of something which is given that you have to recognize and somehow worship, if you, if you wish. And, and this corresponds to totally opposite uh, metaphysics, so to speak. And now, once you accept the supremacy of power, the idea that what you need is power to free yourself, then what are you going to say about people who have more power than you? <laughs> you know, yeah, you know? but it's also interesting that we also are always proclaiming love is love. The answer is love. Um, what is it? Is it love or power? And what is the relationship between love and power? Like we never, we never really articulate. Yeah, know? no, exactly. Because we don't. Okay. First of all, we are in an age that doesn't think philosophically. We no, we yeah. emote, right? We are we are emotional. We 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 we. Or we react. Or we react. Yeah, 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 that's no. more. That's very similar. But now the thing is, again, what does love mean for us? I think love for us is part of our expressivity, which is partially true. I'm not saying that it is not. Yeah. But. Um, but it is, in a sense, love has to recognize the other as given, as something that I cannot make part of myself. I cannot make part of my own psychophysical world. It doesn't fit. If you try to do that, uh, things are going to get problematic, and they do all the time, right? And, and, and so, um, again, you don't love somebody if you don't love the truth of who they are. And, and you see there is a tension there. Yeah, and I think Del Noches hits on this, and we, we see this kind of train of thought coming from back to Pope Leo the Thirteenth and the Church's early social teaching, that this idea that you know power is subject to original sin, and when it's not checked by these transcendent ideals, it's going to become corrupt. So that to really protect the person, especially the working class, like there's a need for for the family, for local community, for these entities that are somewhat apart from state and corporate power, you know, the teaching of subsidiarity. Exactly. And then when you give the state and these corporations too much power, like to the point that the individual or the community is offloading certain responsibilities that they are capable of completing to these higher powers, then like they're totally vulnerable. Like there's no protection left. Meanwhile, we're proclaiming how liberated we are as individuals. Yeah, I mean, there is a really deep problem there is what makes a society, right? What makes us a society? If you take a bunch of people and put them in the same territory, we take for granted that you have some kind of human society. But ultimately, the way human beings are, they are together if they share in some story, some narrative, the not to call it an ideal, an ideal dimension, right? Yeah. I mean, that we know that we are all children of God, or that we know that we are all in the image of God, or we know that we are all, uh, I don't know, uh, could be non-Christian non things. We are all, you know, uh, took a look at China and India, they have great traditional culture, but ultimately it's religion, okay? The notion is very clear that ultimately all human societies before the African society, in some sense, were based on religion. People came together to worship, and this sense of belonging, of sharing in the same narrative, in the same universal uh, story, which was always a religious story, was what made peoples, what made created peoples, created yeah. 
societies. Now, uh, we, in a sense, are the first society in our history who affirms that you don't need that, that you yeah. don't need it, right? That you can be a good, uh, autonomous individual in your suburban home with two cars, two children, uh, you know, or whatever you need, but that ultimately you don't need to have anything in common with your neighbor. And, 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 yeah. and uh, I don't, the notion is very skeptical that this can work because it, causes, it creates what it calls a non-society. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 but again, this is an aspect of the sense of alienation that many people feel today, I think. I think that many people feel alienated because they have a natural desire for unity. People have a natural desire for unity with the people around them and they cannot find the ground for it. Yeah, and a unity that's greater than just tolerance or quote-unquote acceptance, like something, a foundation on which we can base our unity. Something, and and it doesn't need to be that everybody shares the same religion because then immediately people will answer to this that we want to force everybody to be Catholic or Christian or Buddhist or this or that. It does not have to be a particular. I mean, principle. In practice, often it happens because there is a common faith, but in principle. It could be just at the more general metaphysical level that, that, yeah. that, 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 that there's some recognition that, uh, for instance, that human beings transcend nature. Because another feature of the African society is that there is no way to distinguish people from animals. Okay, well, once you remove this religious dimension, yeah. how do you distinguish people from animals? I mean, it becomes very hard. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and I was going to say, for me, I find that I can experience that unity even with someone who's not particularly religious. If it's if um, if you live at the level of asking these fundamental human questions, exactly, precise. Yeah. That's like, the common ground. That's yeah, like to ask questions about what is love, why do we suffer, what is the purpose of our work, like, right? Or the, the experience of pain, the experience of death, the experience. All these things lived. If these things are lived, then there is a unity with with everybody. But uh, but the African society tends to censor, as you said before, yes. these these kind of experiences because they don't fit into the utopia. I mean, there, there, there is a utopian aspect of the African yeah. society. It's the utopia of feeling good, being happy without sacrificing, right? And, and that's completely unrealistic, actually. Yeah, and this was my experience in public schools. Like, whenever we learned about some tragedy in history, I would have this question, well, why? Why does evil exist? Why do people do evil things? And I was always shut down. I was told either we'll never know the answers or we shouldn't talk about it because it's going to drive us crazy. The solution is just, you know, be a good person, be yourself, and things will work out. And I always wonder, well, you know, how could I be myself? How could I be good if I don't know the answers to these questions? And the same thing, even when working with psychologists, I would find that these questions would plague me, but they would just be like, you know, you just need to stop worrying about these things. And I'm like, I don't understand how you can be fully yourself, fully free without trying to make sense of these questions, because, again, then what's the point of living? Yeah, I mean, I was looking at all this... uh ads by great corporations like Mercedes and Siemens and General on Twitter you know, for the month of June that mm-hmm. it's also about be you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But who is you? Then <laughs> yeah. uh, there is never that answer is never asked because then it would collapse like a kind yeah. of and that this is another thing. I mean I, I quoted something from Don Loach in this article that I wrote about the whole rainbow capitalism phenomenon that a lot of people who um, who are critical of capitalism, who you know claim to be socialist or whatever kind of progressive, fully embrace this kind of individualistic sexual ethic, this you know total autonomy of identity, and don't see the cognitive dissonance there. That this idea that the individual can determine their own their own identity, their own um, whatever, that this is wrapped up in a very capitalistic understanding of the person. Um, At the end of the day. 
the only way that this being you being yourself being authentic can be interpreted is in terms of follow your instinct i mean i don't know do you agree i mean it seems to me it seems i think that. it's yeah it's to an extent it's follow your instinct but it's what it ends up becoming is follow the narratives that were handing down to you the powers that be because most people who latch on to whatever identity category it's um it's because it's this kind of consumerist experience like people if you don't have a sense of your identity in a substantial way then you're you know you're looking for something you're looking for something to latch on to so then if you you watch tv you watch netflix you turn on social media you see all these options presented to you and you latch on to whatever whatever one you relate to most whatever you think is most exciting makes you most unique but at the end of the day i think none of these um like they parade themselves as being authentic but truly it's not it's i mean you know. this, this is the contradiction that the notion attributes to marcuse you know the famous mm-hmm. thinker from the sixties that, yeah. that he that he thought he could fight capitalism in a sense by releasing the spontaneity uh, of, of the person it's kind of back yeah. to nature right mm-hmm. back to to a kind of nature but at the end of the day that is so easily redirected you yeah. know and, and, and manipulated without a reason in some sense without asking the questions that you mentioned before uh, our you becomes like pulley in the hands yeah. of power I mean, and, and so and then this is what the notion called you know the, the the contradiction of marcuse that he was trying to fight the system but he's again he, he ended up strengthening he says that never no other revolution in history played in the end of its enemies as that promoted mm-hmm. by marcuse and similar people yeah and it's uh, it always makes me wonder though why are people shocked that these major corporations latch on to the you know whatever sexual liberation narrative of the day because um when you totally remove this ontological understanding of the person but also the communal dimension that the person is oriented towards family towards building local community um of course everything becomes about consumerism of course everything becomes about trying to attain more and more material things or pleasure um i don't know but again it's like it shows how at least in america we don't really have any orientation to philosophy or logic you know because if you did you would see like these it all lines up like it all kind of goes hand in hand i mean it is also a a, a degree of abstraction if you wish this yeah. is what walter percy used to say if you remember because if you examine your own experience you see that these things don't correspond I mean, you, that, that what is being proposed as love is often just sentimental or that yeah. what is being proposed uh, but nothing else is being proposed i mean that's the problem i mean i, I sympathize with young people who you know the, i was reading about these young people going to the parade you know mm-hmm. and, and uh, of course what attracts them well this idea of being together that yeah. is possible to love each other and to be nice to everybody yeah <laughs> and god bless them i mean it's not that that they want to criticize them nor does the notion but you you have to understand that if you as you said if you don't recognize the deeper common human, human ground that we share and, and which includes the thirst for the truth which includes mm-hmm. the question of meaning which includes uh, also the the possibility of sacrifice which includes the possibility of recognizing that some things don't do good for us even if they feel good yeah. all right if you don't take if you don't do this work uh, everything becomes manipulated and and shallow right and and, and nobody's telling young people that they have to do this work and that's the problem and i also think it's important to recognize the moralistic dimension to this kind of ideal of well-being because you take something like 
know, same-sex relationships, which traditionally have always had this connotation of deviancy or of challenging the norm, the cultural norm, um, and turn it into this bourgeois ideal of marriage, which again never had any historical precedent, but now it's like this something to to be celebrated morally. It's this um, you know held up to this ideal that again lacks any metaphysical roots, but you know. Yeah, I mean, the notion went as far as saying that uh, homosexuality is the symbol of our age. We said this back in 1984, and he was not talking about gay people per se. Yeah. He was talking about the idea uh, of something which is individualized love, which is non-teleological, right? Yeah. Because the, 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 the traditional idea, of, say, of sex and family was teleological, was, was uh, in the sense that you know, human beings are fulfilled by serving some higher end or something that transcends something, outside, right? something that, that's part of the couple. Which is the child? The child is the symbol of yeah, yeah. the third, uh, the third transcendence, the third agent. And to the notion, uh, homosexuality was symbolic in the sense that it it, it doesn't see it can be it can be lived maybe without transcendence. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. And I so before we start to wrap up, two figures who I think embodied Donoche's thought well. So first, Dorothy Day, who started out as a Marxist. But then, because of her attraction to the poor, uh, as a people, as opposed to the masses, as she said, she recognized that their dependence on the transcendent, their need for a kind of community that was greater than just, you know, this idea of the class struggle, um, this is what attracted her to the church, but also to synthesize, um, to synthesize her social concerns with these higher metaphysical truths about the person. And I, I always send you that when I read these um, these excerpts from her diary about when she was in the 60s and she had all these hippies coming to the Catholic worker who were very free about their, you know, their liberated sexuality and how she was very scandalized because for her, like, to be concerned about the poor, to be concerned about social justice implied some level of poverty, not just materially, but spiritually, to have some sense of, you know, um, I guess ultimately chastity, that to be reserved in the way you carry yourself in your personal life has something to do with your efforts for, you know, greater the, the greater social good, and that, you know, if she was kind of shocked to see these kids who are very much into justice for the poor, but who are living very loose personal lifestyles. And I think again, you can see here that it's when you remove that ontological level of um, the critique of the bourgeoisie of, you know, the affluent society, ultimately you're going to get this libertinism, which is becomes an obstacle to the the real progress of the working class. You know? And not much to add. I mean, it, it, it is very symbolic that you know today there is this big division uh, between the elites and uh, the working class, which is probably stronger than it ever was because there is nothing in common. I mean, it, it, people could be poor, but they could feel that this, the king mm -hmm. symbolized uh, the nation, something they belong to, right? That they belong. You can be maybe illiterate and poor, but you still belong to something greater than yourself symbolized by the king or, or whatever but now there is no such thing so people are poor in a double sense they are poor because they don't have money but they're also poor because there is no meaning <laughs> that justifies yeah. that the kind of that that gives a contest for their material poverty you know what i mean that can in a sense uh, impart the hope that the material poverty is not the last word on their life instead it is the last word on their life i mean and, 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 you know they all a big the disaster with the opioids and 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 and, and, and drugs it, it, it is kind of the, 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 the death, the physical death of, of, uh, of 
people, first of all, have been denied belonging to any larger context of meaning in life, I think. Don't you think? I mean, yeah. yeah. And it also says something about the fact that most people who are you know, considered working class, their cultural sensibility aligns more with this traditional worldview, like traditional gender roles, the experience of motherhood and fatherhood give dignity to the person. And it's, I find that so many people who are concerned with the well-being of the poor, their cultural sensibility really reflects this kind of elitist globalist ideal that's very removed from the real needs, the real experience of the people they're advocating. I mean, if you want to think bad, it's often narcissistic. <laughs> yeah. It's more of a projection of their sense of self-value as good, helpful people than to try to really embrace the poor because then the poor, as the real, the real poor, probably they would probably wouldn't like them too much because they don't corroborate their their sense of self. Yeah, and you see this especially right now with all the the craziness going on with Roe because, again, there's this idea that in order to be liberated, women, especially working-class women, need this option to terminate pregnancies, but the reality is for many working-class women, the experience of motherhood is a true source of dignity, something that's liberating, as much as, sure, financially, it's constraining. Yeah, and vice versa, on the other side, you can see that abortion is a arouses passions that are kind of disproportionate to the yeah. concrete interest because I mean a lot of people that are well off middle class they have plenty of access to contraception they probably are not too concerned about themselves getting an abortion mm-hmm. but it has a symbolic meaning it really yeah. symbolizes this independence of the individual this possibility of non-sacrificing and yeah. uh, and then it's projected on the poor women but this projection I think it's potentially violent because uh, probably the, some of the poor women would be happier to keep their children if they could yeah. than some of the more well-off uh, people who really perceive abortion as this super critical symbolic uh, warranty of their freedom. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the way they seem to feel. So the other figure who Del Noche himself wrote a lot about was Simone Weil. So can you say a little bit about what he saw in her? Well, you know, Simon Weil in her life was, uh, first of all, a very secular person, coming from a very secular Jewish, well-off French family. Then she became some sort of socialist, Marxist, and then she became religious in her own particular way. And to the noche, the trajectory of Simon Weil is symbolic of the trajectory through which a modern secular person can escape from the prison of... Uh, Immanence and rediscover transcendence. I mean, so Simon Weil was the supernatural, the transcendence of the supernatural. And uh, so he thinks that is, uh, sorry, the notion that her experience was highly symbolic. And the crucial element was that she rediscovered the supernatural through a radical quest for justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 the notion felt that the, she was able to rediscover religiosity by asking radically. The question of justice and injustice in a way that was not narcissistic. That was, you know, if you take seriously the question of justice, you're faced ultimately with a religious question. Yeah. <laughs> there, is, there is no way around it. And so her trajectory is symbolic, the way it can happen for people today. I mean, the, the, the people will not rediscover God in the abstract, you know, as a, to the, the five proofs of St. Thomas, nothing against them, but, mm-hmm. you know, the, existentially, people always rediscover God if they take seriously some experience of their humanity. And Simone Weil, this was the, the quest for social justice. 
and you can see sometimes schools happen today still, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but, but there are people that to the extent that they seriously uh, say, somebody took seriously the question of uh, self, we talked about it before, who, mm-hmm. of you. If somebody takes seriously the question of, uh, say, feminism, like we were talking about, I think we talked about Miguel Favale, I think. Yeah, was, uh, if you take seriously the question of, you know, of, of our being male and female, what does it mean? What does it ask for? What does it point to? If you take these questions, any question, any human question seriously, then that's the route to the religious question. And it must happen that way. So I think that uh, in that way, uh, Vlad was exemplary. So just to wrap up, what would you suggest to someone who's never read Del Noche before? Where do you think they should start with reading? Well, I translated three volumes, and the first was designed for beginners. Okay. So, so the first called The Crux of Modernity is an anthology that I put together because Del Noche was a disorganized genius, and some of his books are very hard to read, like the other two are compiled by him, and they're hard to read. The first one, which I translated, is a little easier. He can be dense, and he's not somebody that you may immediately understand when you quickly browse it, but I think it's worth the effort. So I would start from the crisis of modernity. I would read the introduction, not because I wrote it, but because it was designed to mm-hmm. give people a sense of where the notion was coming from and what's in the book, and then but you don't need to read it cover to cover. You can skip around and find what is interesting to you, uh, but that's the way I usually recommend to start. Okay, so start with the intro. And then if people want to follow you, you're active on Twitter. I do. You can Google my name on Twitter. Look for my name on Twitter. I don't claim to. I I, I use Twitter as a mini mini blog because I'm lazy. Instead of writing a blog, when I have a thought and I think, oh, that's an interesting thought, I put it on Twitter. So you can have my thought if you want. Perfect. All right. Well, Carla, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me.